Father, thanks so much for this day you've granted us. It's a gorgeous day out. And thank you for allowing us to be here to study your word. I pray that you will guide our discussions, help us to understand and think and ponder about this text, these texts, and help us to understand you better and your son better. In Christ's name, amen. Um, today we're going to continue our discussion of the humanity of Christ by looking at his two natures. We talked about that last week under the term the hypostatic union, and that's just a fancy word which means the union of the divine and human natures in Christ in one person. And we made the, we made the points last week, we're going to make them when we talk about some heresies coming up, because in the Council of Chalcedon they really defined the, the relationship of the two natures of Christ, and we said that what that basically means is that the human and divine natures were in perfect balance in Christ. One nature did not um, overshadow the other. His divine nature did not um, in some way take over the human nature so that the human nature was not evident. Nor did the human nature take over the divine nature. Rather, both natures were in balance in him, in perfect balance. And that the, the, the natures did not mix. The human nature did not become a divine nature. That's one of the errors that happened in church history. Some guy came along and said, well, I've got this figured out. What actually happened is that the human Jesus, the, the divine nature within him, or the human nature within him, became divine by its union with his divinity. That's not what the Bible teaches. Both natures remain, keep their separate identity, yet they're in perfect balance. And one of the ways that you see this balance between his natures is in the um, temptation of Christ. So if you go to Matthew chapter 4, let's, let's do that. Let's go to Matthew 4, and we'll look at this text here. And by the way, as you just read the Gospels, you can see the humanity and deity of Christ in balance. The humanity of Christ is seen in that he got tired, he would sleep, he got hungry. All right, that's the human nature of Christ. Then you see the divine nature, obviously, with the miracles, with his omniscience and his knowledge of people. So you, as you just read the Gospels, you see that there's something unique about Christ. But probably where the, the humanity of Christ is seen in a, in a very clear way is in the temptation of Christ. And you see him in perfect balance. Now this is recorded in Matthew 4. Uh, Mark 1 has just one verse on it. Luke has some verses on it. And basically what happens is, of course, after the baptism of Christ, all right, when he's taken up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately what happened after that was the next event on Christ's calendar. He's taken out to the wilderness to be tempted. All right. And how long did that temptation last? 40 days and 40 nights. And what you see in this temptation is the contrast. The contrast, there's, there's a lot of theological contrast, if you think about this, between the first Adam and the last Adam. Remember, Christ was the last Adam. Adam was the first Adam. The first Adam was in a garden of perfection, right? Beauty. There was no sin there. All right? There was no rebellion in the garden. It was a perfect place. And what did he do? Sin. Christ is taken out into the wilderness, into a place of desolation. The Bible says he was with the wild animals out there. 
and probably this was down south of Jerusalem, down in the Judean desert. And if you go there today, it's a desert. It's really desert, desert. Sheila can tell you about the desert, desert, desert down there. And it's hot, and there's no water, and it's, it's a very uncomfortable place to be. And he was tempted, and it says he didn't eat for 40 days. All right? Now, obviously, he drank water, because you need water to live, but he didn't eat any food. So, what condition was he in at the end of the 40 days? Very weak. All right? Most of us, you know, if we don't eat for four hours, we're weak. You know, here he goes for 40 days, and um, he's weak. He's, 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 he's really at his low energy point. How would he, however, have had access to water in a desert? There's, pl- there's watering holes, places down there to, to, to get water. It's not, there's, there are oases down there um, in the desert. Um, but he was certainly in a state of physical deprivation. He was tired. You know, he was alone for 40 days. The scripture says he was by himself for 40 days. All right. And, uh, of course, when you're by yourself, you think of a lot of things. So, you know, the humanity is looking forward to his ministry. I mean, this is the inauguration of his ministry. And why did he come here to die? All right. So he's thinking about this. And he's got 40 days. And Luke even intimates... Possibly that not only we think of the temptation of Christ as being at the end of the 40 days, you know, Satan shows up and gives him the three temptations. But Luke seems to indicate that throughout the 40 days, there is a temptation going on. All right. It was we see the last three of them, but there's an indication possibly that he was tempted by much longer than those three. But, you know, during that whole time, it was a time of testing. That's what it is, a time of testing. And when we look at this temptation, I wrote down here two Latin phrases. You can now impress your friends with your Latin. All right. And those two Latin phrases that theologians have argued about for a long time are passe non peccare. Passe, able, Latin for able. Peccare is to sin. So this says Christ was able not to sin. All right. What does that imply in that statement? He was able not to sin. No. He chooses not to, but he could have. He was able not to. All right? So implied, if you're able not to do something, that implies you're able to do it. All right? So this theological position says Christ was able not to sin. All right? Now, when they do that, what they're emphasizing is Christ's human nature and intimated in there is the fact, is the, is at least an indication that the human nature is sinful. Now we talked about this before. Is the human nature, is it, is an essential characteristic of humanity sin? No, no. no it's not. Okay. Yeah. She was ready to come out of her seat at me last week. Yeah, I'm glad she didn't. Um, but, uh, it's not an essential characteristic because in eternity, we won't be able to sin, but we'll be fully human, all right? So this emphasizes the, the, the possibility, at least, that in Christ's humiliation in his incarnation, all right, being subject to human, to human nature, he could have sinned, but he was able not to because of the divine nature. He was able not to, all right? The other theological position is not possible, non posse peccari. He was not able to sin. It was not within his ability to sin. All right? Now, I, I've t- said this before. Where do you think I think the Bible teaches? Which one of those do you think I 
think the Bible says. It's true. The bottom line. He was not able. Why was he not able to sin? It's God. God cannot sin. All right? Now, when you start looking at this, there's a lot of, um, a lot of people have objections to this. And um, I've read a lot of material on this, and some of the people that really promote this first position here says, well, look, if he was not able to sin, then it wasn't a temptation. All right? In other words, if you're not able to do something, then there's no temptation for you to do it, because you're not able to do it. There is no temptation. All right? Now, on the surface, that sounds logical, right? That sounds reasonable, sounds logical. And a lot of times people say, okay, fine. So then they buy into this first position and say, well, you know, for the temptation to be real, there had to be a possibility of him falling. However, if you think about that a little bit deeper, is that necessarily true? Is it necessarily true that in order for temptation to be valid, you have to be able to succumb to it? No, it's not. No, it's not. All right. And why isn't it? Why isn't it that? Why isn't that true? Well, it's not true because when you think of temptation, is temptation an infinite force? Is it an infinite? Does it have infinite power? Temptation? No, it doesn't. Right? If temptation had infinite power, are you responsible for your sin? Ultimately, you've got to answer that question, right? Follow what we're saying here? If temptation is an infinite force, then we will all fail because we can't help but fail. Therefore, you've got to answer all of those problems about, well, why would God make you that way that you could not do anything but sin because temptation is an infinite force? Temptation is not an infinite force. It's not, it's not infinite in the sense that when you face with temptation, you will fall, ultimately. That's not necessarily a true statement. If it were an infinite force, and we were all had no choice about it, and we were all sin, and we would all fail, then Jesus' redemption for us on the cross would save everybody. Yeah, you got yeah, you've got those implications too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got a lot of nasty implications that come out of that that you've got to sort through. All right. And, you know, the Bible says, you know, now now our problem here in our fallenness is that since we are fallen, since we have flesh that we have to deal with, all right, we fall to temptation because of the weakness of our flesh, right? I mean, Romans 8 tells us that. Paul talks about the weakness. Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. He talks about in his flesh, in his weakened condition, he does those things he doesn't want to do because of the weakness of the flesh. But someday we're going to get rid of the flesh. And then we won't be able to sin because it will not be within our ability to sin. In fact, think about it this way. In heaven, in the eternal state, will you be able to sin? No. That's sort of good news, right? You can't mess it up. Once you get there, you can't follow it up. So the way to understand, I think, this temptation of Christ is that in his divine nature... See, here's the other thing here. Let's say he was not able to sin, which implies he was able to sin, which implies that God is able to sin. Now, that really has some theological issues there, right? 
Because by definition, what God does is righteous. So now you've got yourself in a real problem there if you want to say, well, God can sin then. See, if you go this first way, you're technically saying it is possible, it is possible for God to sin. But the Bible says it's not possible for God to sin. It's impossible for him to lie. He cannot sin. It's not within God's nature to sin. And in Christ's perfect, the union of his two natures, the, the divine nature within him was not able to sin. The human nature felt the pull of temptation, but temptation is not an infinite force. Therefore, his human nature did not fall to the temptation, did not allow itself to be overtaken by it, but it still felt the full force of that temptation. So Christ took temptation to the ultimate degree. So when the, he says in Hebrews that he is a sympathetic and faithful high priest because he understands how we're tempted, you can bet on it. He knows what it's like. He took it to the ultimate degree. Dave, you're... All temptation is, is if, when you think about it, all temptation is, it is a, um, how do you want to put it? Yeah, in, in those cases it was perfect. Just emotions are not temptations in and of themselves, right? We talk about temptation being, you know, if you look at, um, well, let's just do it, all right? So we can get a, we'll come back to this in a later section of the course. But if you look at James chapter 1, you really see this whole concept of the pathology of temptation and what temptation is. I mean, James does probably the best part or the best job of explaining temptation. He says um, in verse 13, okay, of James chapter 1, verse 13. This is a very important text to understand. Let no one say when he is tempted... I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so what does that really tell you right there, which one of these is right? Jesus is God, therefore he... Right. To sin. Alright. He's not able to sin. He's not. God cannot be tempted, and God does not do what? Tempt us. Alright. To do what? To sin. Alright. To do sin. So, God, so when, when you're facing a temptation, you can't say, God's doing this to me. No, but we, we did say that temptation is not a That's what we're going to get to. Yes. But what James is saying here is that one of the things that the believer understands, all right, in fact, James really is, some say that James is really a, a, an expansion or maybe a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things that James is talking about is, is marks of salvation. How do you know someone is truly born again? Well, they ask God for wisdom. They also, they, 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 they control their tongue, alright? Um, they have real faith that exhibits itself in actions, not in just some words, like it says in James chapter 2. If you say you have faith, that means nothing unless I can see some evidence of it in what you do, alright? And one of the marks of salvation is when you're tempted, when you face tests, and that's what his parasmas here. It's a neutral term. It's just a test. When you face that, you can't say, well, God is doing this in order to cause me to sin because God cannot be tempted by evil, 
You can't tempt God, nor does God tempt anyone. And the word there, there's two words in Greek, hupo and apo. One of them means direct, one means indirect. And it says here that God is not only a, not a direct cause of your temptation, he's not even indirectly a cause of your temptation. God does not even indirectly cause you to be tested to sin. God is not, that's not what God does. And, and, here's, and later on in James 1, he says, why would God, think about this, he said, why would God go to all of the trouble to send his son to die for you, to save you, to redeem you of your sin, only to tell you, go ahead and sin, it doesn't matter. That doesn't make any sense, does it? It doesn't make any sense. God is not going to save you and then tell you it's okay to sin. Or God's not going to save you and then do, cause you to do sin, the very sin for which he saved you from. That doesn't make any sense. Why would God want you to sin? God doesn't want you to sin. But, he said, but it shows here where the temptation comes from. Alright? But each person is tempted when he's lured away, lured away and enticed by his own desire. Fishing terms. One means to bait a hook, one means to lure with bait. What causes, what, where does your temptation come from? Your desires. Okay? Now, where do those desires lie? In, in your flesh. In your flesh. That's the, the technical term is your flesh. Alright? And all of us have different enticements, don't we? Um, could be your upbringing. It could be all kinds. You know, there's all kinds of factors in there. Um, I don't want to get one of the problems or one, one thing is some say, well, it's in your genetic code, you know. And, and there, there's maybe an element of truth to that. You know, there's some people that can take a glass of alcohol and doesn't bother them a bit, and others become a drunk. You know, there may be some. You know, in our fallen nature, there may be some genetic disposition to certain sins or others. It's not all genetic. Don't, I'm not even saying that. We sin because we choose to. Whether our genes tell us to do it or not, it's irrelevant. We all do that. But all of us face different temptations. All right. I'll walk through the mall, you know, with all the pretty dresses and everything. And I, it doesn't bother me a bit. I'm not tempted to buy a dress. All right. Not at all, you know. Doesn't bother me a bit, you know. But now you all might walk through there and you might succumb to covetousness, you know, or whatever. You know. We're all faced, we all have those different temptations, you know. We all face those because of our humanness, you know. Men are faced with different temptations than women are. But we all have, we're all tempted. And those temptations come from our own desires, which are neutral. The desire is neutral. But how you respond to the desire will cause it to be sinful or not. Ruth, you're going to... Right. He already was 
in charge of everything the saint got offered him. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm thinking maybe the temptation for him was to grasp that again that he had laid aside. Yeah. As opposed to um, obeying the Father. I think you're, you're on to it there. So I think that's what Philippians 2 is going to tell us when we get to that. Where does it say he's, that he was tempted? I have that, Anna. I was going to, I was going to read it. It's in Hebrews, and it's chapter 2, two verse 18. 18. And I was going to read MacArthur. Go ahead. The verse said... Oh, she gets an A in the class. She was quoting MacArthur. Oh. Yeah. The verse says... Um, So John MacArthur agrees with me on that one. That's good. No, I'm sorry. I agree with him. Um, and, 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 and James here, and, 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 and I think we're going to we'll see some answers as we look at this. Desire is neutral. We get hungry, right? Is, that, is it wrong to be hungry? No. Is it wrong to be thirsty? No. Is it wrong to feel sexual desire? No. What is wrong is when you start going about satisfying those in an inappropriate way. Is it wrong to need a nice dress in and of itself? No, no it's not wrong. It's not wrong to, to want those things. That, that, that's a normal part. Where it becomes wrong is when we succumb to doing it the wrong way. All right? And that's what he said here. We are tempted when we are lured away, when we are drawn like a bait, like, like a fish to a hook, to the bait on a hook when we're drawn away of our own lust. And again, you know, you can dangle a nice juicy earthworm in front of me and it doesn't bother me a bit. But you do that to a largemouth bass and he's going to go for it. Why? Because it's within his nature to go for it. Alright? We all have different things that we're drawn away to, to want. You know, sometimes I think the root of that is idolatry because we seek those things food, the nice dress, whatever it is we want. We seek those and want those more than what our relationship with God. Yeah. We went to him first, seeking first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added on. Right. Instead we get the order messed up, we kind of put him to the side and say, well, he, he could get it for me, but I really need it now. Right. This is, this is what you need versus what you need. Yeah, it's okay to be thirsty, you know, but if you steal to do that, that's wrong, right? If you steal your food, you know, I mean... What happens is these nat- what, what's happening in our fallen state is those natural desires that God put within us have become distorted and twisted. And because of that, when we succumb to satisfying them in an inappropriate or invalid way, that becomes sin. 
All right, and that's what it says here. Desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Having the desire is not the issue. It's when you start thinking, okay, how can I satisfy that desire? Then it becomes sin. When you start thinking about all the ways in which you can satisfy your lust. And lust there is just your desires, your, your inward desires. And then when that's fully grown, it brings forth sin. If sin starts, understand this, sin starts in the imagination long before you do it. And it's like, it means to impregnate there. The interesting word there, the, the Greek word means to impregnate. The, the desire is impregnated within us and then the natural result of that impregnated desire is it will work its way out in sin. Alright, so how do you deal with temptation? What's the best way to deal with temptation? Well, where does temptation lie? within your desires. Where do your desires lie? Within your flesh. So your real fight in, the, in spiritual warfare is not against some demon out there, some devil trying to get you to do something. It's with your own flesh. That's where the real battle lies. Alright? And that's what we need to focus on. Okay? And James is sitting there saying, you know, in verse 16, look what he says, don't be deceived Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down with the Father, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Why is temptation not from God? Well, God is the one who gives us all good things, right? He's not going to give us evil things. And not only that, of his own will he begat us with the word of truth that we would be a first fruits. What does that mean? That's talking about. Your salvation. Why would God save you from sin only to tell you it doesn't matter whether you sin or not? Or why would God save you from sin only then to take an active role in trying to get you to commit sin? That's nonsense. Where does sin come from? It comes from your desires in your flesh. You are enticed. You're drawn away from the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You're drawn into that. Now, did Christ experience the drawing yeah, because he had what? The same desires. Christ had all the same desires we have. Alright? But he never succumbed to the sin because he never allowed it to become ingrained in his imagination so that he would be thinking of ways in which to satisfy that desire. Is this making any sense at all? Like you say, sin is of the flesh. Right. But even, but even Satan knows our weaknesses, so he tempts us just as he tempted Jesus. Um, Satan is probably not as active in your temptation as you think he is. Yeah. When you're tempted, you say, oh, the devil's tempting me today. No, he's not. He's out doing something else. He's probably not bothering with you. I don't think any of us in here is... And, and you know, we're going to get into this in the spiritual warfare later on, but there's a... There's this idea that every time we're tempted, there's some demon hanging around us trying to get us to do things. Demons don't need to be involved in our sin. We do very well on our own. Because where does the problem lie? It's within us. Isn't that why God said it's the world, the flesh, and the devil? Yeah. The three aspects. Now, can Satan tempt people? Sure he can. All right? But the way he tempts that is through the world, usually through the things we see in this fallen system, right? And ultimately, how does he get to us? It's our flesh. It's the desires of our flesh. So, so where, where you need to really focus your, your, your 
spiritual growth is on your on overcoming the flesh. Uh, in Colossians it says, put to death the deeds of the body. Mortify your flesh. There's a good old-fashioned term, mortification. Mortify your flesh. Kill yourself. Starve your flesh. You die daily. I mean, starve it. You know, if you're tempted to lust after pretty dresses, don't go to the mall. Right? I mean, that's kind of easy. If you're tempted by pornography, don't look at it. Avoid it. Stay away from it. Don't feed the flesh. You know, same thing with any other sin that we would think of. Just stay away from it. Christ knows what it's like. He felt, as, as was in his note there, he felt the full force of that temptation. And that's, that's back in Matthew chapter 4. You know, at the end of 40 days, verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command... Now, did Satan know that? Did Satan know he was the Son of God? Sure he did, alright. He's a sneaky little bugger. Command these stones to be made loaves of bread. Now, Christ is God, right? Deity. Created the universe. It's not tough to make some bread out of stones, is it? If you're the creator of the universe, that's, that's child's play. Would it have been okay for him to necessarily do that? Sure. He could have done that. He could have done that. But in his incarnation, Christ subjected himself to the will of the Father and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit led him out into the wilderness for a reason, right? And when Satan comes along and says, well, just make these stones bread, although theoretically it would not have been a sin for Christ to have made anything and eaten anything he wanted to, in that temptation experience, he was following the leading of the Father. He was subjecting himself to the guiding of the Holy Spirit, guidance of the Holy Spirit. And as such, had he made those stones bread, what would he be telling his Father? I have a better idea than you do about this. Isn't that what say, uh, Adam said? Yeah, you told us not to eat of the tree, but you know, God, I think you're holding out on me here. I, I've got a better idea. And that's, by the way, when we sin, that's what we do. We tell God, we have a better idea than you do about this. And for Christ to have succumbed to that would have been sin. Now, Satan appealed to what here? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life? Those things in Second or First John 2? Appealed to that. And not only that now, he takes him, took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. This is about 400 feet over the valley. There's a prominence on the temple and you could stand and look down 400 feet into the valley. I mean, it's a very public place. But he was in the desert. Do you think he took him like, how did he do that? In his mind or? In his spirit. Um, it doesn't tell us necessarily. I mean, of course, Christ being God can be anywhere he wants. Um, I, I would take it literally that Christ was literally taken to the pinnacle of the temple. Because he was allowed to have that power at that time. And it says here, um, he said, why don't you uh, throw yourself down? I mean, it's quite a big trick, you know. Here's a guy flying off the pinnacle of the temple and taking a soft landing at the bottom. I mean, that would really kickstart your ministry, wouldn't it? 
And what did Christ say? You did not put your Lord God to the test. That was not God's plan. That was not in God's plan for him to do it that way. That was the easy way, right? And say and Christ did not fall for that. And then finally he, he says he showed them the all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, If you just fall down and worship me, I'll let you have it all. Now, does Satan have is he the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world? Sure he is. Alright? And what's he trying to get Christ to do? You don't have to go the cross route. I know that's what the Father planned. You don't have to go that route. I got an easier way for you to go. And Christ said no. In fact, he quoted another verse of Scripture. And by the way, whenever Christ was tempted, what did he do in this passage? Go to Scripture. Now, that's a good way. If you want to think about dealing with temptation, here's how you do it. All right? If you have temptation in a particular area of sin, go memorize verses regarding that. And it's not fun anymore. Because when you try to get tempted to do that, the Holy Spirit is going to barrage you with a whole bunch of Bible verses and it's not going to be fun. And I think Vance Haver put it well. He says, if Christ could defeat Satan with three verses of Deuteronomy, what should we do with the whole Bible? We need to know the Scripture. We don't have to fall to his devices. Not by power, but my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And Lord of hosts was a title for the leader and the captain of the armies of heaven. And I said, okay, it's your battle, it's not mine. So I got up on Tuesday and I said that. I quoted that scripture probably every two to three minutes for the first two to three weeks. And then I kept doing it and it did, he did take it away by using his word. Memorize the Word of God. The reason most Christians fall into sin is they don't know they're falling into sin because they don't know what the Word of God says. So memorize Scripture. All right? But what you see here in Christ's temptation is that he felt the full force of this. I mean, he was in his weakest condition. And there was a part of him that said, you know, I don't have to go the cross route. I could, I could have it another way. But he said no. Because that was not God's way. See, there was God's way and every other way. And we have to decide in our own lives, are we going to do it God's way or are we going to do it our way? Whenever we do it our way, what happens? We foul it up. Right? Big time. You can't do it your way. You've got to do it God's way. And Christ, when he came, he, was, he had submitted himself to the will of the Father. He submitted himself to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he knew that the leading of the Holy Spirit was not to cause him to make stone, bread out of stones. It was not to circumvent the cross. It was not to do some fancy miracle of flying around in the heavens to make people in awe of him. Rather, it was to do it God's way. And that's what he did. Okay. I'm still stuck. Okay. Um, and, and let me just talk this through and, and you can help me clarify where I'm stuck. Okay. The non-toxic card. He's not able to sin. That's the divine part. The human part, which by virtue of being human, has a propensity towards sin except 
It can be tempted. It can be tempted. It can be tempted. It can be tempted. But it does not have to fall. True. Now, the human part of you, hungry, 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 thirsty, well, at least hungry. Is it that at a point of his utmost hunger, which is the humanness, divine doesn't get hungry, Mm -hmm. uh, is it that at the point where he would have been most vulnerable to yield on the human side, the divine side, which can't sin, was the stopgap measure to keep him from sinning. Thus, if that's true so far, that's the difference, obviously, between all of us and him, which then makes it seem more, I don't like the word unfair, I wish I could think of a better word, Mm -hmm. but where, I mean, if I made it to tonight and maximum to tomorrow night, and I'd have 38 more days to go, okay? I, at, at, by tomorrow night, tops, I'd be turning something into something. So, <laughs> I, I just, I, I guess to try to make a 100% parallel between me not sitting under the most dire circumstances versus him not sending under the most dire circumstances is where I get stuck into him having the ability not to and me perhaps yeah. not. See, the thing he did not have, he did not have a fallen sinful nature that was subject to sin. Right. All right? But he had a human nature that was tempted. It is possible in his human nature to have, to be tempted. Yeah. But not to sin. He felt the full force of that temptation. He felt the full draw of those desires but he did not yield he's not a schizophrenic the one of the things you got to watch here is you got to say well christ has two pieces to him the divine piece said no to the human piece you can't sin and if, the, if you go too far down that way then some have fallen into heresy saying the divine totally absorbed the human nature such that it was not a valid human nature that's not true he had a full human nature No, no, because he's divine. That's right. But but being human does not necessarily mean you have to sin. That's that's different. You don't have to sin, and that that's where we have trouble. And one of the things we got to be careful is we can't really compare ourselves to Christ. You know, in the t- we we can't really do that because we have a fallenness and a corruption and a distorted view. He did not have that. He did not deal with that. But he certainly felt the force of the temptation. Alright? And, and again, you're going to have to think through this. This is, this is not something you're not, you know, you're going to resolve in 30 minutes or less. <laughs> you know, you got to think through it. But when you start thinking through it, you understand because he is divine, he could not sin. That would have, I mean, that would have unraveled the universe. Right? If Christ would have sinned, you would have had a split in the Trinity. Alright? 
And in that case, the human would have overcome the divine. Right? If you're saying it's a necessary component of, of humanness to be able to sin, and he had sinned, then the human part of Christ would have overcome the divine. Well, they're both in perfect balance. And knowing he was The purpose of the temptation was to, um, if you want to think about it, for him to be a faithful and merciful high priest. That's what Hebrews is saying. When I go to Christ, when I, when I go to God, and I'm facing a temptation, and I, I say, Father, you know, I need help. He says, I understand. I know what you're going through. I've, he can identify. That, that's the whole point of the incarnation. It's for Christ, for God to identify us, not intellectually but experientially. Alright, there's some deep thoughts there. Christ experienced rejection. He experienced hunger. He experienced all the things that you and I face every day. Christ experienced those. He experienced those to the ultimate degree and never sinned. So he knows whatever level of temptation you're facing is not near what he faced. So he understands it and he can sympathize with us. And we can go to him for help and he can help us. And the promise of 1 Corinthians 10.13 is that he's not going to allow us to be tempted above our ability to handle. If we go to him and ask him for help in a temptation, he will help us. Dave, here. I think what you're saying is we might have a desire to associate with people who are nice or have power like the neighbors or Christ had no desire but he never got that far because somebody else had one or there was a person that's not so nice he went and talked to that person where we might have a desire not to and avoid that person he, he, he would do the right thing right. in every case because he was led perfectly by the Holy Spirit but he had the desires yeah of course, as a human, he had those desires. But he was totally controlled by the Spirit. He, his job, he said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. Um, and because of that, he did not succumb to that. It's not wrong to, to want a nice car. It is if you want to steal it. You know, or you want to you know, buy something you can't afford. Or, or, or you want it because of some pride. You know, I'll be cool if I drive this car. That's, that's the sinful part. It's not wrong to want a car to get around in. You ever heard people preaching that your thoughts are, are sin? You, you sin in your mind, right? It ultimately does in James chapter, thir- or chapter 1, but sin does not come about until you start to dwell on those things. Let's take David. Okay, He's out walking around on his porch roof or his house roof, and he sees Bathsheba bathing over there. Was it wrong for him to see her? Stuff happens, right? I mean, it does, you know. It was not necessarily wrong for him to see her. Was it wrong for him to appreciate her beauty, necessarily? No, but what became sin? Now you start thinking about wanting that. You desire that. And now, and then that led, and he sinned long before she showed up at his door. He had already committed adultery in his heart. See where you see the difference here? It's not wrong to, to go around and see a nice car and say, Boy, 
you know, that's a real nice car. I'd like a car like that. That's not necessarily wrong. Now all of a sudden it's wrong if you say, well, if I quit giving to the church, I could buy that car. You know, if I quit doing this or, you know, and then you start working it over in your mind. Or, you know, that car would really make me look cool if I got that car. I'd look really cool, you know, if I got that. You know, I'd be a chick magnet or something like that you know, if I got a car, you know. Now all of a sudden, now, now you've got, now you've got problems. And, and the way around that is to appreciate God, you know, when it comes to temptation, let me, let me tell you a, a thing. Appreciate God and thank God for the, for the, for the, I would call it the portion He's given you. God has given us all of us certain things, right? Let's thank Him for what He's given us. Let's appreciate what we have. And if you get to the point where you appreciate what everything God has given to you, then, you know, these lusts, you know, the desire for more and more and bigger and better and faster, and it goes away. But temptation, Christ faced the temptation. The Bible teaches He was fully tempted. He fully felt it. It, his, his humanity allowed him to be tested, be tempted. Why? So he had those human desires, hunger, thirst, tiredness. All those desires were there. You see it in his hunger. You see it in, in the, the nature, the lust of the flesh. Make something to eat. The lust of the eyes. Uh, here's the kingdom of the world. Don't you want them? Don't you want to be the king? Well, Christ is going to be king, but he's not going to go Satan's way. He's going to go God's way. See, that's the difference. That's really the difference between sin. Do you want to do it your way or God's way? Your way is sin. God's way is the right way. Go God's way. The pride of life. Throw yourself down. I mean, man, it would really be an ego trip to float down to the bottom there and have all the people worship you. He didn't do it that way. He did it God's way. And we have a choice in our own lives. Do you want to do it your way? Do you want to do it God's way? And then you look at Christ's divinity. The divinity is seen in his inability to sin. Being fully God, he could not sin. It's seen in his perfect obedience to the Father. He came to do the will of the Father. And how, how ultimately do you know that he perfectly obeyed the Father? What was the final proof of that? Raised from the dead. And it's seen in the subsequent ministry of angels. When he denied Satan's Temptations, what did God do? Send his angels to minister unto him. In God's time. And see, again, whenever folks, this is our great temptation in life. We sometimes think, you know, well, God needs a little help to pull this one off. I'm not sure he's going to be able to do this. I'm going to help him out. See, Abraham had that idea, right? God said, I'm going to give you an heir. So Abraham said, okay, uh, let's see, it's been 12 years. All right, now. You know, I got to help God out here because He's going to be able to pull this one off. So they followed the legal, by the way, it was a perfectly legal method back then, that Sarah, in the Hittite code, Sarah could choose a surrogate to bear an heir. Sarah couldn't bear an heir, so she picked Hagar to bear an heir for Abraham. That was a perfectly valid thing to do. And Abraham knew that God promised him an heir, right? So maybe this is the way God's going to do it. Maybe God's going to, going to give me an heir by this way. So Satan, so not Satan, but Abraham said, well, I'm going to help God out on this one. And now you've got the Arab mess. Right? God tried to help, I mean, Abraham tried to help God out and got in a mess. And folks, listen, whenever you try to help God out, you're going to mess things up. Every time. 100% of the time. 
Let God work it out. God will take care of it. Alright? But Christ was fully tempted. Now let's look at the kenosis in our last ten minutes. The kenosis, and we've been, we've been skirting around this issue here um, in the class. Kenosis means self-emptying. Christ emptied himself. Philippians chapter 2. He emptied himself. What does it mean when we say Christ emptied himself? Does it mean he emptied himself of divinity in his incarnation? Um, some say, yeah, he did. When he became a, a human, when he took upon himself the form of humanity and in his incarnation, he gave up some divine attributes. Now, in our study of attributes, what did we say about an attribute? What, what, about God's attributes? Can God lose attributes? Can he gain attributes? No. Therefore, Christ could not give up any attribute. Christ could not unbecome God. Christ could not say, I'm going to cease being God for 30 years. Because it's an intrinsic part of his nature. He can't do that. He can't. God cannot give up. You know, there are things God can't do. And one of the things God can't do is God cannot decide not to be God. He can't say, I'm not going to be omniscient anymore. I'm not going to be omnipowerful anymore. I'm not going to be sovereign anymore. He can't do that. That's part of what he is. So the kenosis does not mean Christ gave up divinity in any way. So what does it mean? Well, if you look at the text here, these are the words that, that, that come out here, some, some uh, Greek words here. You can, again, um, impress your friends. Kenosis means to empty. He emptied himself. Morphe talks about essential essence. And it says in Philippians chapter 2, in fact, if we turn there, let's go down through the text and I'll show you where these words pop in and their significance so that we understand what it means. Philippians chapter 2, it says here in um, verse 5, this is the great kenosis passage. Paul's talking about humility. Philippians, he said, I want you to have this mind in you which is in Christ Jesus. I want you to be humble. I want you to think of others, not yourself. Don't puff yourself up. You need to look unto others. And you need to have this mind in you which is also in Christ Jesus. You need to think like Christ thinks. That's a tough one, isn't it? Think like he thinks. But here's how, how did Christ think? Well, it says here, who though he was in the form of God, Morphe. Morphe means essential essence. Christ was in essence God. Alright, we talked about that, what that meant. Okay? It doesn't mean he was similar to God. He was God. In essence, he was God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The, the word there, it's interesting, to hang on to the whole. He was in the form of God. He was in the essence of God. Prior to the incarnation, he was God. Fully glorified deity. Alright? But he didn't think that's something I have to hang on to at all costs. Alright? And you say, okay, well that seems to hint that he gave up his divinity. He gave it up. Well, let's keep reading here. But made himself nothing, taken the form of a serpent. Again, the word form there is morphe. Christ became, in essence, a servant. A slave. By the way, the word there is slave. What is a slave? Well, in the, in the Greek text, a slave is someone who doesn't have any will of their own. Christ gave up his 
divine prerogatives and he took upon himself the essence of a slave to who? The father. Now what does a slave do? Well, if you go back in the in ancient Roman world, the slave did exactly what the master told him. Nothing more, nothing less. So when Christ in his incarnation came to this world, who did he subject his will to? The will of the father. And how did he know what the will of the father was? He was led by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And then it says here, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Likeness there is schema. Externally, what did he look like? A man. In essence, what was he? God. And the slave of the Father. Um, just a quick note again that um, MacArthur says about, about that. It says, um, to, to know this, the doctrine of Christ self-emptying him, self-emptying in his incarnation. This is a self-renunciation. Not in allowing himself not an emptying himself of deity, nor an exchange of deity for humanity. Jesus did, however, renounce or set aside his privileges in several areas. First, heavenly glory, which on earth he gave up the glory of a face-to-face relationship with God, and the continuous outward display and personal enjoyment of that glory. His independent authority during his incarnation, Christ completely submitted himself to the will of the Father, and divine prerogatives. He set aside his voluntary display of his divine attributes and submitted himself to the Spirit's direction. That's exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. He was in the essence a slave. A slave to who? God. What did God the Father send him to do? To be the sin bearer. Christ was still God, but in his incarnation, he willingly, of his own free will, subjected his will to that of the Father. It didn't mean he did not become or cease being God. Alright? He was in the form and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Not only did he take upon himself the form of a servant, he even humbled himself to the point of dying, even death on a cross, the worst possible death possible. Christ did not and what Paul's trying to say is that, you know, you guys are so arrogant, you're so proud, you're so full of yourself, you're so busy looking on your own things. What about Christ? Christ was in the, Christ was face to face, prostant they are, face to face with the Father, had the glory in heaven, the worship of the angelic beings. He was divine and yet he did not think that's something to be held on to so tightly that he was unable to let go of it and make himself Subject to the will of the Father to come into this world to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because of that, what has God done for him? Highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Christ gave up everything to become one of us so that we become like him. So we can be saved. This is not Christ giving up his divinity. Christ did not give up any divinity. But Christ certainly veiled his glory, gave up... And again, this helps explain the omniscience part. Was Christ omniscient? Well, as deity he was, but when he subjected himself to the will of the Father, what did he subject his limitation of knowledge to? Whatever the Father revealed to him. 
The same thing with his power, his miracles. Everything was, he was completely led by the Spirit of God. I love that one. That's a good one. I love that one. I have to get that ringtone. That's a good one. All right. All right. Quickly here. False views. Christ gave up essential and relative attributes. No, he did not. He could not give up any attributes. Christ possessed divine attributes, but they were hidden from view. Only in the sense of his glory. All right. Christ forgot he was God. No, he did not forget he was God. Christ gave up his comparative attributes, but not his essential. What are comparative? Omniscience, omnipresence. He didn't give them up. He just decided not to use them. He gave up independent use of them. What's the correct view? He veiled his divine glory. He subjected himself to limitations. He subjected his will to the will of the Father. And he limited the use of his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence to that which the Father led him. He, he yielded himself. He gave himself up. Gave him up voluntarily. Not in the sense of giving them up, but he just limited the use of them to that which the Father led him. And because of that, he's been exalted above everything else. All right. Next week, we'll start a different section. Let's close in prayer here so the other class can get in. Father, thank you for this day and for this word. I pray that you would help us to understand it. And there's some, there's some very difficult things here to think about, to ponder. And uh, maybe even now it's not clear in all of our minds, but I pray that you would guide us and help us to understand it. And as we ponder it, that we may know you and understand you in a more full way. In Christ's name, amen.